A few years ago, uh, Will and I were um, on holiday in St. Ives, which is one of my favorite places in the UK. It's a very arty town. If you haven't been there, highly recommend it. Um, and um, in line with the kind of arty vibes, I thought it'd be really good to do a pottery class with um, Sky and Joseph. So we've got three children. The youngest is five, and then the older two are 13 and 11. So I, I took the 13 and the 11-year-old, and I thought the three of us are going to do this kind of lovely evening class where we get to try out um, making a pot on a pot proper spinning pottery wheel. And um, it turned out that they were really good at it, and I was totally rubbish. And um, I went third, and I kind of watched them, both of them doing it, and I thought, oh, yeah, then, it, then it'll be me. And, you know, slightly arrogantly, I've done sort of art at school and art A-level and all that. I thought, I'll be fine at this. And literally, within about 20 seconds, the whole supposedly kind of pot in formation just sort of went into this really wibbly-wobbly sort of wonky mess and basically plopped over to the side. Um, and, and the whole thing failed for me. And I didn't realize that when you have like the lump of clay on the wheel, you have to kind of keep pushing it back into the middle. Otherwise, the whole thing just lops over to one side and you can't turn it into a pot or really anything at all. And so just for a moment, visualize this spinning pottery wheel. Um, the pot is spinning as well because both, both things spin um, simultaneously. And what happens is that the centrifugal forces are pushing the clay off to out of, out of the centre, off the centre of the wheel. And this potter, whether it's me or someone much more talented than me, has to keep, press, keep giving pressure to keep it in the centre of the wheel. And in fact, not only that, but to make a successful pot, I also learned in my class that in order to start it off, you have to place the clay bang smack in the center of the wheel. And when we did our lesson, we didn't even get to do that. The potter did that for us because all of us were just far too basic standard to be able to do that. And then um, there's, there's a family here who come to this church, usually in the morning service, the Archer Burtons, and Lucy's mum is a potter. So we were chatting about this last week, and she said when her mum trained to become a potter, she had to spend a whole term just learning how to throw the clay centrally on that wheel. They literally, every week for a term, are just throwing it on and taking it off, throwing it on, taking it off, till they're absolutely perfect shot at getting it bang smack on the centre before they begin their pottery. So just as that clay needs to be dead center on the, the wheel, if not will be de deformed in shape. So we too need our lives to be centered on Jesus. If we're going to become the fullest version of ourselves, if we're going to be purposeful, and if we're going to flourish in our humanity. And as we begin this evening, I wonder, what are the forces that are pushing you away from the center of that wheel? away from the center of God's heart? What are the things that draw you back? And also, what are the things that help you to recenter your life on Jesus? So hold that thought whilst we look at our passage, which is Jeremiah 18, 1 to 10, and I'll, I will read it out. The words are going to come up on the screen as well. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. 
Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So we are in a series, and we're going to be exploring this passage tonight. We also looked at it last week, and we've got two more sessions looking at the same text um, over the next two weeks. So we're going to be drawing out different things um, each week. And so here we see that Jeremiah is invited into this house of the potter, and uh, we're invited to think about God perhaps in a way that's slightly different to usual. We often think of God as our father, our healer, our lover, our guide. And here, instead, we're thinking about God as a craftsman or God as an artist. And of course, at the very beginning of the Bible, we find in Genesis, God uh, portrayed in this way. In fact, God is the original potter. In Genesis 2-7, he takes the mud. You'll remember he takes the sediment of the earth and he forms it with that clay. He sculpts it into being that first human being on, on whom he breathes life. The human being is simultaneously grounded by a connection to the earth and also animated by the breath of God at the very same time. And as Jeremiah watched that potter working, I wonder if he thought back to that Genesis teaching, which he would have known so well as a priest. He would have known the Torah back to front. I wonder if that came surfacing in his mind. He would have been reminded that without our potter, we are nothing. The clay can't say to God, hey, God, today I'm going to be a jug. The clay has to become what the potter chooses to make it. See, we can't dictate to God what we want to do or become. God is the one who can shape and form and construct our lives. So tonight I want to look particularly at what it, particularly at what it means to center our lives on God, to live out God's will as we are on the center of the wheel. So firstly, there are three things that I want to press into. And the, firstly, the first one is this, that you're not an automon. I found in my 20s, as I left school and started going into university and thinking about uh, what were some big decisions, what I wanted to do with my life, that there were options, options, options at my fingertips. And I found myself really frozen in my decision-making. I think, actually, for us in the West, having the luxury of choice is sometimes remarkably difficult and it complicates things. But also I had this uh, theological position that was really um, causing me to freeze up and I would describe it as um, being a theologically a hard determinist. And so this was a, a, what you might call a Calvinist stance and I thought a bit like this. If God is perfect and he's omnipotent, he's omniscient and he's omnipresent, he's able to experience control the past, the present and the future at once. That must mean that every event is therefore preordained. So then, how do I make any sense of the fact that I have choice and that I have to make a choice? I got completely stuck there. It seemed logical that I needed, therefore, to hear precisely what God wanted to say to me so that I could live out his exact will for my life, which meant that essentially I needed to sit around and wait 
for the delivery of perfect instructions. And so I was totally frozen. Our passage today really rocks that sort of theological stance, don't you think? If we look back again at verse 4, it says, But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seems best to him. God reforms the pot. God redirects our lives. You see, the will of God for our lives is malleable. We have a God who has flexibility in his nature. We're not simply a load of automons on this earth who've been predestined and pre-programmed to do certain things. That means we don't just have to sit and wait and do nothing until we get the download of perfect instructions from Jesus. Thank goodness, because I think my ability to wait on God and listen perfectly is definitely not good enough for that. But instead, we seek to become godly in the small things, and we trust that he will work out his will hand in hand with us every step of the way. So today, I might call myself more of a theological soft determinist, um, and that would align itself more with Augustinian theology for those theologians in the room. And in contrast to Calvin, what Augustine pointed out is that God equips human beings with free will. And so if we have free will, we have genuine moral responsibility, we have culpability for our choices. God knows in advance how we will decide, but he doesn't interfere with our autonomous choices. He actually allows these to occur for good or for evil. So when your pot is marred, as that passage refers to in verse 4, by, by your mistakes or my mistakes by the mistakes of those people around you, but maybe by regrettable life decisions that other people have made over you and into your world, that doesn't mean that you are now sealed into a forever position. The circumstances of your life are not the sole dictator of your future or what will happen to you. And maybe some of us uh, feel that deep sense of marring and scarring on the pot of our life. Maybe we felt somehow deep down that our destiny is kind of decided. Maybe the mess feels familial, and maybe it feels inevitable. Yet we've got in this text this image of a marred pot that can be reformed, of a pot that can be re-centered on the center of that wheel. Restoration and change is possible in Jesus. And that brings me to my next point, which is that we have a second chance. If we're going to live in the center of God's will, we've got to live as people who know we have another chance. Because however much we might desire to follow God's will in every way in our lives, we will make mistakes. Think again about verse 4. It says, the pot is marred, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Shaping it as seemed best to God. If we're going to live in the center of his will, that means living a life where we keep on allowing him to form us and reform us, to do that time and again, to learn to actually love that process and to accept that he always has another chance for us. When we're spinning on the center of the wheel and we know that we're starting to spin, we're starting to go off course, we feel like we might even be falling off the wheel in what's going on in our lives, then the potter is there ready to pick us up, to gently place us back where we should have been before, to place us back in the center of his will. 
And it's as Jeremiah watches that potter that he gets that revelation, that it really hits home, that he realizes he has a second chance, that God's people have a second chance, that we all have a second chance. Thirdly, you have a voice and you have a choice. If we uh, think on uh, verses 5 to 10, those second, that second part of the passage really shows us that we have a part to play in the decision-making that goes on in our lives. We have been given a voice, and we're meant to use it. We've been given choices, and we're meant to use them to live in the kingdom of God. Verses 7 to 8 say that God, if God announces that a nation is set to be uprooted, but it repents, so there's a voice and a choice of repentance, then God will redirect its future accordingly. God can change his mind. God is omniscient, and yet he's able to amend and change his plans for us. By the same token, we get a warning in verses 9 to 10 that if God had a plan for us, but we ignore him and we disobey him, then he'll reroute us, and he'll reconsider the good that he had intended. We're not automons, we have a voice and a choice. So what does that mean for us if we are people who are living, committed to Jesus, we're trying to seek out, uh, to be in the center of the wheel, to live day to day following God's will? Well, we could actually be so encouraged, deeply encouraged by this passage. Because we know that if we're going wholeheartedly in his direction and we go, of course, he'll bring us back. So if you like, we can run the race wholeheartedly knowing that he's going to scoop us off when we start going in the wrong direction. And as I thought about this, I thought it'd be good for us to think about one of the historic greats of the faith who've done this. Because I think we've got so much to learn from the Christians who've gone before, who've lived this out, and whose lives we can look to as examples for us who are trying to live in the center of God's will in our lives day to day. So I've been thinking a little bit about Florence Nightingale, and some of you will know of her. Maybe you don't know a huge amount about her, but Florence, age 16, she's sitting under a tree in her parents' Hampshire estate. She's from a very wealthy background. She's praying, and she feels that God calls her to give her life to him in service, aged only 16. And she discovered that she had this um, passion, talent for nursing, because her family had all been sick, so she'd stepped in to look after them and done a great job. So when she has this call from God um, and, and this sense of God saying, give your life to me, she goes, great, I'll be a nurse. I can do that. That's how she fell into it, if you like. She said, God has spoken to me and called me to serve. So she goes to her parents, who are this very wealthy uh, Hampshire family, and she says, I want to become a nurse. And she gets an absolute, uh, just a response of absolutely speak to the hand, no way are you going to do that. At that time, nursing was very disrespected. It was a job for the lowly. It was dirty. It was smelly. You got splattered with blood. It was not something that you did if you're from high society. But she's made a choice. And she's going to use her voice and her hands for Jesus. So she convinces her family. They actually sent her off to go and travel the world for a year. 
quite an interesting parenting tactic if you don't like the choice your child's trying to make. Why don't you travel the world, change your mind, experience lots of stuff, and then come back and tell me you want to do something else. And she does that, and in fact uses it to go and speak to lots of people in medicine so that she can uh, inform her nursing practice more effectively. Comes back and says, I'm still completely convinced I want to be a nurse. And so they realize then that actually uh, she was obviously pretty committed to what she wanted to do. Perhaps it's something of an echo of, just in that example, an echo of how they changed their mind and saw how serious she was. Perhaps that's something an echo or of an echo of how God changes his heart. So they let her do it. And she felt called to it, but it was not going to be easy or straightforward. She wasn't paid. She actually did you will have heard all about her work and all that she did in setting up these nurse training centers. She was never paid a penny. She lived off a, a, a small um, salary that her parents kindly gave her. So she did it. She didn't do it because of the massive pay packet that was going to drop into her bank account at the end of the month. She actually caught Crimean flu from the soldiers that she went to nurse. And she spent a total of 11 years in bed in total, if you add up the time that she spent um, recuperating from the illnesses that she caught from the people that she cared for. She said, uh, as she looked back on her life, there's no part of my life on which I can look back without pain. So God's call and following God's way isn't necessarily easy, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily walk away from what we think that he's called us into. I'm very inspired by how committed she was to what she felt the Lord led her into. She said, the service of God is the service of man. And I think for many of us in whatever career or whatever career we might feel called into, that might challenge us in our outlook. So if you want to live in the center of God's will, use your power of choice. You're invited to use it. Use the gift of your voice. Keep on questioning whether day to day you're centered in God and expect a constant refining, a bit as Florence had, a refining as you go. I want to ask you now um, a question that I began with. What's pulling you off center of the wheel? What's pulling you away from the center of God's will right now? And we all know that if we want to make big life decisions that are in line with the will of God, that we need to make the small day-to-day -day decisions in him because it's the small stuff that mounts up to the big stuff. We know that. But our intentional daily living becomes really significant in the light of that. I recently read James K.A. Smith's book, uh, You Are What You Love, which I highly recommend. Fantastic book. It's about the power of habit. Um, read it this year if you can. And one of the things that he teaches into brilliantly is how uh, we're constantly being shaped and formed by the stories and the narratives that we immerse ourselves in, by the stories that are around us in our culture, in our families, in our workplaces here in London. And if we're not being formed daily by the gospel narrative, he argues, by the story of the Bible, which is the heart of God, then we're being deformed. We're being deformed. A little bit like the pot is marred. We're being deformed by what is coming in. So we can't answer the question, what should I do, without first answering the question, of which story am I a part? So I wonder what's deforming you right now. What's pulling you off center? Is it an addiction? Is it a habit? Is it a friendship that 
is battling with your heart for your faith? Is it something that you're reading or consuming? What is it? A few years ago, um, I worked as a journalist before I, I started training for ministry. And, well, really, I worked as a journalist, but I also gave a lot of my time voluntarily to serve in the church. So if you like, I viewed my, myself as being on a sort of double track, if you like. <laughs> um, two, two, not two careers, but two different things, really big things in my world that I was um, working on. And I began to feel very pulled in these two directions, add in the mix that we had three children. Um, and I began to feel like decisions need to be made about what um, God wants me to do with the next stage of my life. And um, I wasn't sure if it meant moving away from the journalism and moving into the ministry more, more full-time or vice versa. And for a season, I thought maybe I meant to just go, go for it in secular journalism. So I started applying for jobs and I started, I was already doing some freelance work, but I started applying for more freelance work. And I thought, well, if this might be the direction God wants me to go in, I've got to go in it wholeheartedly, as I mentioned earlier, and, 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 and pray that God shuts doors. And it was a pretty uncomfortable process, if I'm honest, because the doors did shut, and they kept on shutting and shutting and shutting. And even though I knew that I kind of put myself out there, and they wouldn't necessarily open, and I kept on saying, Lord, you know, you make it clear, you open doors and close doors, I kind of, I'm a human, I wanted them to open so that I felt a lot better about myself. Obviously, I wanted job offers, but they just kept shutting, and everyone was a dent to my pride. Everyone was like, a, oh, I've just put in hours filling in these forms. And I spent some time with a friend who's in recruitment, picking her brain and getting her to go through my CV. But it was, it was a refining process, but it was really healthy as well, because I began to see, actually, maybe God is shutting these for a reason. And maybe this is a redirecting that's going on uh, in my world. And maybe this is God stopping me from going what for, what for me is perhaps going off course and off center. I wonder what keeps you centered on Jesus day to day, week to week, month to month. What are the things that help you to stay centered in him? I've said we need to live intentionally and deliberately in the day to day, but how can we do that? The first narrative that we need to invite to form us, I believe, daily is the gospel story. And I think we need to be really real with ourselves about whether we are actually immersing ourselves in that story or in lots and lots of other stories. We need to find creative ways to engage with the word of God every day, even if it's just for a really short time, so that that story starts to become the first story on our hearts. Will mentioned life groups um, earlier, and I'm glad he did, because I wanted to talk about life groups too. But we need to be accountable with our life and our faith. It's great that you're here tonight. But becoming part of the church is becoming part of a family. And that means being open and real and communicating about our day-to-day -day with our other family members. And if you're not a part of this church, please join another one. Please join another one, and please join one of their life groups. <laughs> If you're here, please join one of ours because we want to grow and we can't do that on our own. We need to lift up each other's arms uh, when things are really tough. And we need to do that in accountability and in community, in uh, vulnerable friendships. So we'd love for you, as Will said, to find out about being in a life group if you're not in one. 
and learn what it looks like maybe for the first time to be in a place of vulnerability with your faith and a place of openness where you really can grow. I also believe passionately that we need to work out how to build practices of prayer into our daily busy London lives. And that's something that I know Tim's going to be talking about a bit more in September when we're going to be looking in our um, series on, of talks on discipleship. We're going to be thinking more about practices of prayer that we can all be building into our day-to-day. And if you come on Tuesday night, I'm going to be um, leading us in prayer of examine, which is an Ignatian prayer. Um, I won't talk about it now because I'm going to talk about it on Tuesday, but I'll just say that it's really helped me to do this recentering on Jesus daily in my own prayer life. So come on Tuesday as well and come and pray. pray. Prayer is a way for us to be connected as clay to the potter. In prayer, we're inviting the Holy Spirit to transform us inside out. And prayer isn't just for, for God, it's also for us because prayer changes us. Prayer is part of that transformation process where the pot can be reformed and reshaped and the marring can be turned into something new and something beautiful. It's our way of inviting the potter to get to work on the reality of our lives. And so in light of of that, I'd love to invite you to stand and let's pray um, together now. Jesus, would you come right now as we think about these words, as we think about this passage with you as our craftsman, our creator at work in our lives, forming us and reforming us to become more like you, drawing us back into the center of your heart.